As we go to scripture this morning, I want you to notice a few things, as I do every Sunday, but particularly on this one. Um, What you're going to hear is Laura read an amazing list of names. And what we need to know is these are divided equally into three sections of 14 generations each. Those who have taken my classes clearly understand that numbers matter in the Bible. And 14 is an amazing number. It's seven twice. Seven is a holy number, and earth is four, and heaven is three, and when these two combine, any time you see the number seven, it's where heaven comes to earth. And so there's these lists of generations are important. See if you notice some other elements as Laura reads, remembering that everything was focused on being male at this point. We're going to try and give you some help with some of this as we put the scripture on the boards. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jehoniah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoniah was the father of of Selathiel, and Selathiel, the father of Jerubabel, and Jerubabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Ahim, and Ahim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathan. 
and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. I think we need to applaud that. You know, one of my expressions is always, holy Moses. <laughs> yeah, they're even better. More appropriate for this morning, jump in Jehoshaphat. So I, I'm going to pretend like we're not in second service for a, a few minutes. What did you notice? That sometimes women were mentioned, except for Bathsheba. Uh, just mentioned of her husband. You notice that? Bathsheba was not mentioned, but she was referred to in that list. So how many women were on that list? There were four women listed on that list. What we see on that list, and if we could put those, I'm not asking you to do this, Jim, but if we put those on the screen of all those 14 generations, what you would have, I believe, is the church. Because I've got to tell you, at least two of those women, well, by the way, uh, Three of those women were not Jewish. The only Jewish woman on there was Mary. The other three were not Jewish. So why in the world would they make the list? The other thing you need to know is, particularly when it moved to the exile, the Babylonian exile, two of those kings were terrible. Terrible. Abusive. Terrible kings. Why would Matthew choose to put this genealogy this way. So here's my question as we begin. What if it's not about the history? What, about, what if it's about Matthew saying that we need to come to terms with this point at the beginning of this gospel? That it's not about just being holy. What if it's also about being open and grace-filled and accepting. What if that's what this gospel is about? So here's the other test. What followed this immediately? Now, I see one person who has their Bible open right now. No, you're good, Wally. You're, you're, oh, two people, three. Oh, go, oh I'm so, oh, my heart is strangely warmed. Four, five, six. Way to show off. What, what follows this immediately? It's the birth narrative. But it's not just the birth narrative. What Matthew does is he focuses on Joseph, who had every opportunity to take this young woman who would have on any other kind of roadmap been seen as a harlot. And because she was pregnant before being married, he had every opportunity and responsibility to take her to the edge of the city and have her stoned to death. But what does he do? He's filled with grace. And he avoids that and 
decides that he is going to divorce her quietly so as not to put her to shame. This is how Matthew begins his gospel. Isn't that incredible? I mean, it, 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 okay, let me just say, it needs to be incredible. <laughs> and we're going to spend a year examining what all that means. So I want to introduce you to a few members of my family. First of all, let me introduce you, and I have one other Sunday in, in the two years that I've been with you, is I want to introduce you again to Nathan Beeman. Nathan Beeman lived on the, um, would be the east side of Lake Champlain. And this is back... Uh, at a time where this country was in incredible tension. And Nathan, being young, he was a young boy, and he would paddle his canoe across. That gives you some idea of the era, and this next piece will give you a specific time of, uh, of era. He paddled his little canoe across, and the, his favorite place to play was at the base of the parapet walls of Fort Ticonderoga. And he would go and he would play for hours and hours, pretty much all day at the base of Fort Ticonderoga as it was occupied by the British. And they would look down from these walls and they would spit on him and they would throw things at him and they, they would think it was great fun to listen to him kind of play and talk to himself. And he was known at that point as, as a half-wit. It's in my blood. <laughs> a half-wit. And that's how they considered him. He knew it. And there came a day where this young, incredible, heroic man uh, found out that he had played every day at the base of the walls of this fort. And the man who came to him late one night to Simon, his father's home, Simon Beeman, his name was Ethan Allen. And he had a set of soldiers kind of not really soldiers, a group of folks, and they knew that that fort was essential to the ongoing success of a war that was emerging. And so late one night, Nathan Beeman paddled across that lake with Ethan Allen and his Green Mountain boys, showed him a secret way into the fort, and without a shot being fired, and no casualties, Ethan Allen and those men were able to take control of that fort and its cannons in a very important place in the beginning of this war. And there are plaques all over the Fort Ticonderoga and other places of Vermont that celebrate Nathan Beeman and his, his work on there. Look him up, but just spell it with one E, Beeman. He's my great, 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 great. I, I mean, I don't know what the multiplication would be of my grandfather. Jump ahead. Five generations. Central Vermont. Yes, I have a great ancestor whose name was Rufus. His nickname was Ruthless. Ruthless Rufus Beeman. And he was, he was, remember the movie The Music Man? And how Howard Hill would come flying into town with his crate of instruments and sell them at the top price because promising the world to anyone who would purchase this instrument and they were going to become the greatest band ever. This is my great, 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 great grandfather. I happen to have a business card of his, and it's so perfect. Rufus Beeman, it says, and it gives Middleton, Vermont, and 
on every corner is a different job that he can do. He was the jack of all trades, the master of absolutely none. I'm sure they wrote that cliche around him. And he was ruthless. And then he would, he would get all your money and then he'd leave town. And because his last name was Beeman, he would play off of the plaques of Nathan to make sure that he had instant credibility no matter where he went. Ruthless Rufus Beeman. Look him up on the web. You're not going to find a thing. <laughs> but I was tasked with in seminary, all of us were, of looking at where our roots began. And the Beeman family came to the United States, to the country in 1632. And we're able to trace back a long ways the religious history of this family. And that's why I know what I know about these. But let me, let me jump ahead because it wasn't, what, two or three days ago that we celebrated uh, Martin Luther King's speech on the mall in Washington, D.C., right? The I Have a Dream speech. And that brings the third person. And that's my dad. Now, my dad and I disagree on a lot, a lot, a lot of things. But I have, I have deep and significant respect for him, partly out of this era. When I was about six or seven years old, I have distinct memories of walking the streets of Seattle, holding hands with certain other folks. And I remember one hand that I held. I had no idea who this man was. And he taught me the words as we were marching in Seattle, holding signs to, We Shall Overcome. Later to find out his name was Ralph Abernathy. And then we all marched, many of us, or a group of people marched to Grace Methodist Church at that point. And I watched in absolute awe my father standing in the pulpit of Grace United Methodist Church. And part of the reason I remember this so distinctly is he and I were the only white faces in this sea of dark faces. But I also remember... Because I was only seven, maybe six or seven years old, I couldn't sit by myself. And so I sat beside and in the lap of the largest woman that I have ever known and was able to sink into that incredible beauty. And I distinctly remember her arms around me. And it was, it was beautiful, and I felt safe, and I felt accepted, and I distinctly remember a scent of lavender. And I shared that story with Larry Blackstock out of this church and Lori Matsukawa at, at a certain reception last weekend. And, um, and it was a beautiful moment as Larry is now pastor of that church. And they are struggling with their identity of whether they continue to be that church or something that's emerging. But I remember, I remember that day. All three of those represent blood that flows through my veins. I said, my family, my dad's side of the family came to this country in 1632 in the first wave of Puritans that were kicked out of England. My mom's family came through South Carolina and moved almost immediately from there in about 1820 and moved immediately from there to Oklahoma and then to Arkansas and settled there. And they were plantation owners and business folks. And two presidents came out of that side of the family, two U.S. presidents. They were a somewhat judgmental lot. 
and had a propensity toward abuse. And you see it through the generations. Um, And my mom, and I've shared this with you on particularly certain Mother's Day, who was severely abused as a child through most of her teenage life, and yet made a decision that that blood that ran through her veins with a propensity toward abuse would stop with her generation. And it did. What blood runs through your veins? As you think back of your family history, what do you know? What can you see? And as I said earlier, there is an amazing uh, group of kind of new scholarship, new study of how significant DNA is. That it is no longer just about your hair color or the propensity, sorry David, for baldness. (laughs) I'm right there with you, buddy. (laughs) 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 Handsome, though. Um, But also interests and hobbies and other characteristics that are much more significant than we have ever thought before. So what does any of this have to do with where I'm headed with this Gospel of Matthew study? The genealogy of Jesus is so important because for Matthew, what he is trying to help us understand is that this is no longer this narrow scope. This is no longer you're either in or out. This is no longer a time of a lack of acceptance. None of those women other than Mary was Jewish. So what does that say? Is Matthew trying to tell us that already in the midst of the beginning of this gospel that we need to understand that this is a gospel of openness? It is a gospel of acceptance. It is a gospel that's going to help us understand that the community gathered represents the community scattered and the community that, communities that have gone before in that it's not just about always being good or judging others. It has to be much different than that. And then to have that story of Joseph who looks at his betrothed and doesn't have her killed, doesn't even want her judged. What he wants is for her to be protected. Protected. And what happens then is this incredible gospel story Next year we're going to, next year next week we're going to look at the wise men, and then we're going to begin to look and unfold some of these things and what it means for us. So let me go there right now. What does this mean for us? What if? What if? And you know we're headed here. What if we became the representation of that genealogy and had that blood flowing through our veins in everything that we did? What if we became that church? And what if we found a different word for being church? And I will tell you, I've struggled for a long time about what that word would be. Church now has a different understanding among those who don't go. And they don't want to be here based on that word. But is there a better word for that? And I keep trying to think, and, and I was sitting with Shannon Hamrick last week, and we were going through kind of a year of, of kind of sermons and focus. And she said, what if gospel became that word? What if we became the living gospel? 
the living good news, the living sharing, the, that kind of thing. And it, it reminded me of one thing. So I, I'm giving you an assignment today. And I've gone, kind of ventured away from what I used to do, and that is giving assignments every Sunday. So you're going to get an assignment today. You ready? If you forget, I will come after you. <laughs> Look at you coding scripture. Um, I won't. I will send you emails in my blog. What if this sanctuary became that gathering? What if what we had in the sanctuary weren't just the cross or the stained glass? What if we began to put up pictures of transformation? Your pictures, not mine. What if your pictures, and by transformation, I don't just mean religious. I know of certain construction projects that have been going on in certain places in this congregation. What if a picture of that came in here? The idea came out of two places for me. One was Ron Howard, and I got to work with Ron back in Santa Monica. And it was amazing to be able to work with him. He's just an incredible genius. And if you don't know who Ron Howard is, Opie from Mayberry, who's one of the best directors, one of the premier directors in the world right now. And what Ron did was he created the opportunity for people to send pictures in to him and to Imagine Entertainment, he and his partner. And that what they would do is they would choose specific pictures and create a film out of that specific singular picture. So that's one place. And I thought, ah, I wonder if we could do that. Understanding that your stories are what makes the gospel. But the other thing is I take Business Insider, and I've quoted Business Insider. I've taken Business Insider for almost from its inception. And what they did a number of months ago was they sent out an email to all of their subscribers, and they said, what we need is for you to send pictures of the most important event of your life in the last year. What they expected were pictures of weddings and births. What they got was so far beyond weddings and births. I've shared a couple of those. Let me share a couple of them again. One of the first pictures that I saw that came up was an older gentleman and a young man sitting outside Shea Stadium. What was Shea Stadium? And the caption said, this was my last time of spending time with my grandfather. He died three days later, and this is precious. One of the, among those that took my breath away was this, this man, couple probably in their 40s, and he was spooning with his wife. His wife was in front of him, curved around, and you immediately saw that she had tubes and was in a hospital bed. And here he was spooning with her in that hospital bed as she had just come through exceptionally serious cancer surgery and she had no hair. Transformational moments in our lives. What if... As soon as anyone walked into the sanctuary, they would see pictures of grace, pictures of love, pictures of transformation. And so what I'm asking you to do is to consider what some of those might be for you. And then begin to send them in. We're going to set up an easy way to send them over email and begin to capture them.
And at certain times of the year, we will have certain pictures up. For instance, during Lent, I'd still love to have pictures up, but would love them to be black and white. But can you imagine the transformation that would happen in this sanctuary? You are, friends, the genealogy of Jesus. You are that next generation. One of the, the authors I'm studying says, if you took Jesus out what you, of, of the, that 14th person in that third generation, you could insert any of our names, or at least that would be the hope, is that we're the next generation, the next genealogical generation on those lists. You're the living gospel. Do you realize that? We're the living gospel church, gathering, fellowship. We're that. The danger is, and I'll close with this thought, the danger is that we believe that we don't need to move it beyond the walls. We believe that we're it. That this is good enough. That those who are gathered here, gosh, we know each other well and we feel comfortable with each other. And, and yet, if you remember my sermon last week, of building bridges beyond these walls to places like Bellevue College, second largest higher education institute in the state of Washington. And they don't even have a football team. To allow folks to explore grace love and the gospel in a safe place what if what if they're members of our family what what about those places where women are deeply and families are deeply struggling with abuse what about those places where and it, it's just i asked for prayer for some of our newer folks this morning Brand new family in the church, been here a month, and are separated and have been for six years because her husband lives in Mexico and can't get a visa to come and comes for three days at a time and then has to go home. And a population here that they call the seagull population of young Korean families young Korean families where the wife and her children moved to the Bellevue School District because it's one of the best in the nation, if not the world. But he stays back in Korea and they are absolutely alone here and have no idea where to turn. What if they could turn here? And by the way, they turn to our preschool. They do. What if we became that church, that living gospel? And that when people walked in and they saw these pictures, they would know that they were home. God, this is such an important time for us. It's such an important time for us. We have this beautiful emerging staff, new programs that are growing, but not deeply rooted yet. There are opportunities that surround us, and yet we haven't engaged them yet. I feel like it's such a seminal time for us. But what brings me great comfort is knowing 
that the blood of the generations who have gone before still lives in us and in this church. And everything that has been done before sets us up so beautifully for what is to come. Jesus did not get caught up in the past. For continually he said, I, you have heard it said, but now I tell you. And help us be the answer to that equation. I pray, Lord, that we can create a place where no matter who walks through this door, that they feel as though they have come home. Finally, I just ask, Lord, that you help us see that our own stories are so critical, are so important. that if we can but share those, whether it's in a singular picture or in what's happening next Sunday with Daryl and Lavona sharing their stories with us, that we understand that we truly are a living gospel. And as we prepare now for communion, I ask you to prepare our hearts with those things in mind. And God, we lift up, folks, we'll do that in just a moment. But guide our hearts, all this in Christ's name. Amen.